Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. We have an early Christmas present for you this episode. We'll be discussing The McPeever's Christmas Cards, a story by A.P. MacDonald that was first published in The People's Friend in 1906. And we'll also be playing a, a funny little word game with varying degrees of success. Mr. McPeever came home after an unaccountably long absence, wearing a toil-worn look. The cause of it appeared to be the brown paper parcel under his arm. It might have weighed four pounds, or again it might not, but he stage-managed it with the effect of at least four hundred weights. No professional strongman could have dropped his 500-pound barbell more theatrically than McPeever slammed down his package on the table. He was only playing to a gallery of one, his wife, but she refused to be impressed. I suppose that's a bit steak you've brought home for your supper, she commented disconcertingly. Do you indeed? snorted McPeever disgustedly. After the bother I've had getting this confounded thing and lugging it home to you. But there, I propose to treat your scurrilous remark with silent contempt. And as he thought up a paragraph or two of contemptuous silence, he busied himself undoing the parcel. What it contained was a sample book of private Christmas cards obtained at Mrs McPeever's suggestion. McPeever himself was prejudiced against Christmas cards, hence the grudging nature of his service. Now then, Jean McPeever, he declaimed, approach and view my latest tribute to your ambition. Seeing you were determined to circularise your friends with your new address and a loose-fitting ready-made sentiment thrown in, I consented in a weak moment to pander to you. But, oh, the dreary miles I've travelled, hunting for a shop where they would trust the sample book out of their sicht. The stationers pay half a crown apiece for them, it seems, and money wouldn't buy them. In one shop, they had it chained to the counter like a post office pen. And it was only when I trudged, weary and footsore, into Wate Wilkie's Emporium. Who in the wide world did you know go there first? And it only twa minutes awa. Cross-examined Mrs McPeever unsympathetically. Though McPeever hadn't mentioned the fact, he had gone there first and had wasted his own and Mr Wilkie's time arguing about football. But don't let us interrupt. Mrs McPeever will do all that is necessary in that disrespect. 
It was only when I got there, Jean, pursued McPeever unswervingly, that I met with my first gleam of success. There weren't very many customers in, so I told him all about my pitiable plight, who the wife was fair set on having her name printed on her Christmas cards this year, with the address in bold type, so as to let folks see would flitted to a better part of the Dumbarton Road, mere refined-like and grander, and so forth, We an extra room and a scullery and a washhouse all to ourselves. Surely to goodness you didn't go blethering all this to the man, broke in Mrs McPeever, much perturbed. Not that she could deny the thought germ of the idea, thus appallingly disclosed. But she had never dreamed McPeever could be so foolish as to blurt out her secret policy like that. What for no? queried McPeever amazedly. Inwardly, he was delighted that his ruse had brought about a breathless attention to the story of his own personal trouble in the matter. What for no? echoed Jean aghast. What would Watty Wilkie think? What would the customers think? I dinna ken what the customers would think, but Watty Wilkie thought you were wanting a they details o' our new hoose printed on the cards. He began telling me that there was nothing but the bare address allowed for the money, and that if you were wanting to work in a your building specifications with your Christmas greeting, he would hate a write up for an estimate. Oh, you senseless haven! Putty heed that you are, burst in Mrs. McPeever, enraged beyond endurance. Who I wish I'd never gain you this job to do. I was wishing the same thing myself, Jean, all the time. There I had been turning about, offering untold pretexts for getting a sample book away with me. And the untold rebuffs I'd got were fair unspeakable. In one case, I'd put forward the pathetic plea that the party who wanted the book was quite respectable, seeing that she lived in the same house as myself, but that she was suffering from a highly infectious form of leprosy and wasn't allowed it. I even offered to leave my umbrella in the shop as a kind of hostage. But would you believe it, Jean? I was practically hounded out of the place. And when I peered wistfully in, five minutes later, I saw the man disinfecting my very footprints with insect powder. So that, compared with the like of that experience, Watty Wilkie's emporium was a haven of rest. I hope they shoved you off through your moorings afore you got bubbling enough to hang you. Mrs McPeever's affectionate solicitude was truly touching. Well, continued McPeever unctuously, I replied to Watty Wilkie, sort of resigned-like, that he needn't ask me what you were wanting, that for the life of me I couldn't tell him any more than you could yourself if you were put to it. You see, Jean, I had to shuffle out of that extra printing misunderstanding somehow. But there was one thing certain about you, I added affecting loyalty. And that was if I went home without a sample book, 
you would near bring the hoose doon about my ears. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Colin McPeever, censured Jean irately. Going on that way to folk about your poor wife. Wished, woman, I was only drawing him. You should have heard what he said about his one. I, Colin, encouraged Mrs. McPeever, calming down to listen to the prospective titbit. I, Jean, nodded McPeever mysteriously. Luring me furtively aside, he was muttering that the women folk were all like, and that Mrs. Wilkie was just the very deep. When the subject of his discourse emerged for the back shop, to give him every credit for his presence of mind, he stopped mumbling and finished his remark in a clarion voice. Mrs. Wilkie quoth he, was just the very dearest and best of wives that ever a man was blessed with. Huh, sniffed Jean disappointedly. If that was all you drew to him in exchange for your slanders about me, you got very little change back out of your base coin. Ah, but his forced inflection, Jean, was painful to listen to, and his hunted look was awful to witness. So was the wink he gave me when I responded in the language of diplomacy that we could both say the same thing when it came to that, anyway. And as the pear crater wrapped up this sample book at the back of a showcase, I could well imagine the parcel getting splashed with a silent tear. McPeever turned over the brown paper by way of looking for the silent tear but it had apparently evaporated. He wouldn't have splashed the book enough to blur the prices out, I'm thinking. So sarcastically conjectured Jean as she grabbed the sample book for inspection. And for a full minute, while she churned amongst the various designs, nothing was to be heard in the way of dialogue but a profound silence on both sides. At the end of that lengthy period, Mr. McPeever grew impatient. He was no doubt anxious to get his labour of Hercules completed by the return of the book to the Emporium whence it came. I wish you would hurry up, Jean, he chafed, fidgeting about in the doorway. You didn't need to study the parboiled mottos and compliments as if you had to pass an examination in them. Sit down on a chair, McPeever, and tie your cell in, advised Jean considerately. I'm no going to hurry the book back any faster than you hurried it here. I wonder if I should select a Christmas greeting, or a combination of Christmas and New Year. Give them every benefit you can squeeze in for the money, Jean, counselled McPeever lavishly. Wish them a Merry Christmas and a Glad New Year with many happy returns of birthdays, paydays, bank holidays and Saturday afternoons if there are forms for the purpose. I think I will, murmured Jean abstractedly, referring to the spirit of his advice rather than the letter. Do you think our English friends would understand a Scotch motto on the outside? For Auld Lang Syne, for instance? With an obscure quotation like that, jibed McPeever, I would enclose the translation for old long since to mark share. <laughs>
I marvel at you, Jean. Do you suppose an intelligent race like the English folk didn't ken their ain language with the breeks off and the kilt on? When they see a Gordon Highlander swaggering doon Piccadilly, do they tack him for a Malay? No. They ken Scotch wheel enough in tongue, print, kilt or bottle. Why, they even go to the length of studying Scotch dialect for the express purpose of retailing the Scotch joke and reading the Kale Yard novel. But Jean was only half convinced. I'll maybe better compromise on a kind of easier one, she murmured doubtingly. What do you think of this, Colin? Should old acquaintance be forgot? I think it's whiles justifiable and even desirable to forget some of them, replied MacPeaver densely. Although, on the other hand, I've a good two or three old acquaintances who seem to have forgotten that they owe me money. Failing to get settled convictions on this specimen question from her husband, Jean strayed over a few more pages. Here's a terrible pretty one in plain English, she commented presently, and commenced to read, May every choicest gift be thine this merry Christmas tide. At all costs, Jean, up to seven and six the dozen, let's steer clear of that terrible, if pretty, one. Thus appealed MacPeaver, roused from jeering apathy to open hostility. If you're going to spread that specious humbug broadcast among our friends, my name doesn't appear on the cards. You can tell them I've scratched and that I've struck out our engagements. I fancy myself subscribing to a sardonic wish like that and posting 25 or 50 replicas of the hollow mockery of plain folk just like ourselves. The idea's ridiculous. They can't hear every choicest gift, but if you put the notion into their head that they deserve them, they'll hold you responsible if they didn't get them. And Nathan Short to assure a diamond necklaces and motor cars would satisfy the most of them. Well, well then, Colin, what do you say to the old acquaintance one, wishing them the compliments of the season inside? If they didn't attack our money of the said compliments of the season inside, there'll be little hearn done, if precious little good. Old acquaintance'll be a misfit in some cases, for we've only kent the Blairs a matter of three weeks, and I've never even seen your new friends the Clunises. Whoever, for uniformity, I suppose they'll hate to join the glad throng of recipients, but... Here MacPeaver relapsed into moody retrospect. What rash act of folly it would have been if I'd allowed myself to electrify Mrs Blair, for example, with a despairing cry, may every choicest gift be thine. Should he concluded to a certainty that it was a mock valentine? The design's an off a sweet one. She might believe her intentions were honourable enough, I dare say admitted MacPeaver obtusely. I'm no denying that, but... I'm talking about the floral design on the old acquaintance card, you woodenhead, explained Jean curtly. Oh, if you're running the affair on the principle of a flower show, 
you can award it highly commended. I'll give the rest of the exhibit highly condemned and the job's finished. Who money do you want? Kakani nu, for I hereby decline in advance to write more than half the addresses. Twenty-five's more than twa dozen our money. You'd better get fifty, Colin. As being mere suited to the rank of a retired grocer and his wife like. No, so as to include everybody will need to mind. So as to include everybody will mind, and he some left hour for the pair all the acquaintances will forget, but will send us a care just the same. Arach, Jean, let me tack back the book and get the farce hour for another year. There's nothing farcical about it, you cantangerous mugwump. What else would you do? I'll show you what else I'm going to do, and in good time. Pasteboard'll do well enough for the rank and file of our joint acquaintance, but I'm going to send each of my real old personal friends, especially if they're no in Scotland, something of value. You need to think on that pretext you'll be allowed extra pocket money this Christmas, protested Jean warningly. I'll manage to enjoy myself all the same, good wife, prophesied Colin confidently. My wee bit presents'll no make a big hole in the pittance you're intending to do look to me, smart though it be. But I'll bet they'll be more appreciated than the cards. And my gifts'll only cost a penny each. I thought you said something of value. I suppose some articles of virtue, like monkeys on sticks. If you're going to spend a whole penny each on them, I would send on the money and let them buy what they like. So scoffed Jean. My penny presents will be of mere value than you think, Jean, maintained MacPeaver haughtily. I may tell you that each of them will be a wonderful penny worth of paper that the pair far away bodies are no likely to see unless I send them. Your name's mentioned in it. I regret to say no muckle to your credit. So you'll see the drift of my idea. Oh, the people's friend, of course, where you're getting regularly shown up in your true colours. I wonder you're no ashamed of the figures you cut. Merely the customary exaggerations of the press, Jean. I'll suffer them in silence so long as you continue to get the worst of it, as they tell me you do. But it's no the people's friend I was alluding to. It's the people's friend Christmas number. There's a game in it I want to popularise. It shows who pair doon-trodden man, married, single, and the reverse, can beat prude woman at her own favourite game, the last word. It'll be a great help and solace to my afflicted fellow men, and it'll exasperate the womenfolk extraordinary. And why you go back to Watty Wilkie and greet down his neck about your afflictions? Silent tears fit you best. But incidentally, see that you order their Christmas cards are correct. <laughs> <laughs> 
or I'll keep the price of a fresh lot off your pocket money. Did you know that The Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Odd Fellows can help. And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Odd Fellows can help with that too. They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Odd Fellows a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Welcome back. Um, a little bit earlier, we listened to friend production editor Judy reading the McPeaver's Christmas Cards, um, a nice Christmas story that was published in The People's Friend uh, a good long while ago. And here to discuss it with me, Judy is here. Hello, Judy. Hello. Um, and we're also joined by Marion from the Friend Features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. And also Barry Sullivan, who is the assistant archivist at DC Thompson, is back. Hello, Barry. Hello. Merry Christmas for the archives. <laughs> it's a very festive place, the archives. Always. I imagine you have your Santa hat on. You'd be very right. <laughs> that was convincing. I'm convinced. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure um, you are. So, the McPeaver's Christmas cards, the adventure of collecting um, a sample book, which is not something I'd ever heard of before. Is that something you guys have ever heard of? Is is this a ye olde thing? Um, not that, of course, what you're are you trying to ye olde things, and I'm not. <laughs> That's, were we talking about the word fankel before we got on here? <laughs> so a sample book, I presume. Well, I certainly hadn't heard of it for Christmas cards. I had, actually, because I had a relative who used to send these printed Christmas cards so they would get samples of these things every year and presumably choose their cards and their message off the back of that. Fairly sure they didn't cost two and sixpence, though. Is that? A, I think we were going to find out if that's a massive overprice um, in today's money. Well, I did have a wee look up on the Bank of England um, inflation checker, and it says that in today's money, two and sixpence would be about £15.31p. Blimey. But then you need to put this into context because this story was printed in 1906. Now, about three years later, after the Old Age Pension Act of 1908, Britain started paying an old age pension for the very first time. And if you think that if you were a single person at, in 1909 when it started and you got the full old age pension, your weekly old age pension was five shillings. So that two and sixpence for a sample book is actually half the old age pension from three years later, which kind of makes you think, I'm not surprised they weren't forgiven it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no wonder it was chained to the desk like a, Indeed. a bank spiral. <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought you were going to go the other way. I thought it was you were going to reveal that the McPeevers were um, filthy rich. Well, I think they kind of are, aren't they? Well, they're certainly upwardly, upwardly mobile, aren't they? They're certainly comfortable. Um, they've just changed the dress, hence the whole reason for uh, for the cards. They want to show off. Well, they've got a wash house to themselves. I mean, what more can you say, <laughs> really? <laughs> And they can afford seven and six the dozen for the cards. So that's that's the married couple's pension again, just to put that in perspective. 1909, seven and sixpence for a married couple. That's a week's pension. Wow. When uh, when he talks, when Mr. McPeever is, is telling the story to his wife about uh, how he was talking about going to get the sample book, and he says... Um, they were doing it so as to let the folks see we'd flitted to a better part of the Dumbarton Road, more refined-like and grander and so forth. We had an extra room and a scullery and a washhouse. It sounds very grand. So they've definitely taken a step up. They've definitely does. taken a step up on a pension. I know. Which is interesting because he's been retired throughout mm. these wrangles, hasn't yeah. he? He's a retired grocer. The grocery business pays more than you might think. It must have done. Well, quite clearly. clearly. Where does it say how much they cost? Uh, at all costs, Jean, up to seven and six a dozen. Let's steer clear of that terrible if pretty one. Ah, that's a lot. It is a lot. Very fancy cards. They must have been. Well, they are, but they're not as fancy as the ones I was reading about from a couple of years before this. So did you know that in 1902, there was such a thing as a, a musical Christmas card? No. I always thought it was a fairly recent thing. Yeah, apparently. Um, yeah, there's an advert. Oh, sorry, it's not an advert. It's actually a quite a scathing piece about uh, Christmas cards and, and their various uh, attributes. Uh, this particular piece is from the Evening Telegraph from 1902, and it's entitled Our Stupid Christmas Cards. I see. And uh, there's an argument uh, for keeping it simple, which is, I think, Mr. McPeever's own personal preference. You keep it simple and have something that you can reuse, which I'd never heard of myself. Uh, I quite like that idea. Apparently you take your India rubber to it and anything you've written the year before gets scored out and it's, it's sent back on. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> that's a really good, that's really green. It is very green. But there's, this this particular piece is, is railing against these new ones uh, of all sorts. They said, oh, some of these um, play music, others are elaborate mechanical toys or some embody parlour games of an offensively intellectual character <laughs> or give entire cinematographic performances. Um, he then goes on to speculate, whoever this is goes on to speculate that you may get at some point flying Christmas cards or motor Christmas cards that will require several men to carry them into the house. <laughs> so, uh, <it's> clear, <laughs> so, so clearly McDonald's was onto something. There was something yeah. in that era. I am now desperate to see these Christmas cards from 1902. Yes, I'm, as am I. Does know if they're in a museum somewhere? <laughs> I mean, they must be. I presume as a musical Christmas card, even in 1902, it featured the voice of Cliff Richard. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder how they managed that, though. I, I'm curious. I mean, when you think that uh, at that point, I mean, gramophones were still yeah, still fairly new. Well, you had musical boxes, didn't you? So maybe it's some sort of clockworky thing. I can only imagine it is. Uh, I, I, like I say, I would love to. I'd love to see one and get and get an understanding of uh, how that looks and how it works. Yeah, certainly sounds a bit elaborate. Imagine the postage on that. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's bad enough getting a stamp now. <laughs> Don't expect any Christmas cards from me. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, you imagine the sample book for those. <laughs> <laughs> 
an engineering catalogue. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And a PhD to go with it, probably, yeah. yeah. So we were going to have a word, I think, um, after we'd all had a read of this story about the, the language. Um, at this point, when we're releasing this episode, we are yet to release any episodes where we talk about other McDonald's stories. So look out for those, because you will hear us talking about the language that he uses quite a lot, because it's very funny. And we've compared it um, previously, the the back and forth between Mr. and Mrs. McPeever, like a, a tennis match, where they're both kind of trying to not necessarily outsmart one another, but certainly to send one another up a wee bit. Um, and there's plenty of that in this story as well, um, in particular when it gets to the, the bits where Mr. McPeever is describing or um, explaining his opinions of Christmas cards, which are not terribly positive, I would say. The bit I particularly liked, which perhaps wasn't relating particularly to his like or dislike of Christmas cards, was when they were talking about whether the English friends would understand a Scots sentiment on the card. And he says... Do you suppose an intelligent race like the English folk didn't ken their own language with the breeks off and the kilt on? That's beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful that line. <laughs> yeah, I just loved that. That's great. Um, as we're talking about the dialect, um, I did mention I've got a piece from September 1905. So this is this is just over a year before the McPeavers actually ever appear, and the People's Friend is offering a one hundred pound prize, which that, that's a lot of money. And it says, Scottish serial story wanted for the people's friend. And it's, it's quite a large piece, but I'll, I'll read you a couple of edited highlights from this. So, what is wanted is a story located in some part of Scotland and dealing with present-day Scottish life and character. Humour and pathos are desirable, also an enlightened sympathy with the woes, the joys, the temptations of humankind. But there is no use in calling for these since... If the writer have them in him or her, they will out of their own accord. The story should be told largely in dialogue, long descriptions being avoided. If Scottish dialect is introduced, it should be of such a sort as to be readily understood by southern readers. So they were very specific about what they wanted from uh, the writers in terms of Scottish dialect. Yeah, it's quite interesting they're, they're specifying that because we have discussed before that we probably wouldn't print these nowadays because the Scots would be even too sort of dense for the Scots, a lot of the Scots people. So it's interesting that they thought that that the language that McPeavers are using was suitable for Southern readers. And maybe it was moderated as well by the fact that it was written by an English man. So um, yeah. maybe mm -hmm. that's played a part. Because I, I like, I think there are a couple of little inconsistencies, and I had expected this to be called the McPeepers Christmas Cairns. Mm -hmm. That would seem to be more authentic, but obviously, that that aspect has been reined in a little bit. Yeah, there's a sub editor somewhere that didn't do their job. <laughs> <laughs> Not on my team. <laughs> <laughs> You've been around longer than I thought, Judy. <laughs> I like the idea that there's a line with the language where. Scots is acceptable up to a point, yeah, and then you'll you'll have gone too far, yeah, yeah. Not like stories set in the Hebrides are definitely a no. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way he comes back as well and pokes a little bit of gentle fun at the English and talks about the the plain English greeting being "May every choicest gift be thine this merry Christmas tide." 
almost Shakespearean in its <laughs> syllables. <laughs> it's English, it might be plain, it is not. But he is very good at this sort of thing, isn't he? he very much He so. use the language and the structure just to, to have a little bit more fun. Mm -hmm. And it's lovely. It's kind of hidden in there. You don't need to necessarily pick up on it to enjoy the humour, but it's in there and it's there to be picked apart, I think. Yeah. I was uh, somewhat distressingly or i guess not because you'll never listen to this but um mcpeaver is increasingly reminding me of my father <laughs> really me too really how do Does you know it... ian's father no well he reminds me of my father <laughs> Ooh, christmas scandal um let me know if it's this line in particular because this sounds as though it was directly lifted from things what my father has said um they're talking about what she should put in the Christmas cards and with an idea of how expensive they are. Um, and McPeaver says, give them every benefit you can squeeze in for the money, Gene, counselled McPeaver lavishly. Wish them a Merry Christmas and a Glad New Year with money happy returns of birthdays, paydays, bank holidays and Saturday afternoons if there are forms for the purpose. That is a beautiful line. <laughs> it just sounds it's so much like a thing my father would be like, how much? <laughs> I think I think we should probably wring as much value out of this as physically possible. I think that's possible. just a Scottish man thing, isn't it? <laughs> Quite probably. <laughs> I mean, Let's yeah. be honest. This did remind me, actually, weirdly, of my own childhood in some respects, because every November when the, the address book was brought out and, and there was a mini production line in place, you know, a production line of two, but, you know, one was writing the inside, so that would be the to and from, and someone else would write the, the envelope. And it was, a, it was a chore. It wasn't something that was to be enjoyed. It was a chore to be done. Um, and it was great from a kid's point of view, obviously, because that then heralds the start of of Christmas, you know, it's around the corner, but it was something they didn't particularly enjoy, and I don't suspect many do. Well, that's exactly it. That's the that's Ian's line did remind me a bit of my dad, but the one that really got me was towards the beginning of the story, where he says, um, "McPeaver himself was prejudiced against Christmas cards, hence the grudging nature of his service." <laughs> and the grudging nature of my dad's service at Christmas was precisely that, Barry, because. My mother thought my dad had much nicer handwriting than she did. And so he had to address all the Christmas cards, presumably to impress the postie. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had the other Yeah, we had it the right way around as well. Yeah, my mum, I think, did the uh, the envelope so they actually reached their destination. And I hope they never listened to this. But uh, my dad would scrawl. <laughs> to and from on the inside <laughs> in, in, a, in a hand that would test my paleography to this day. <laughs> well, if you're in our house, there'd be no danger of my father taking anything to do with any of that. So I think he's probably more like McPeaver than... <laughs> would he be in the shop talking about football rather than doing the shopping then? Is that, is that where he, he would be found? He would be in the pub talking about football. Ah, sensible <laughs> he man. Would be, he would be running no errands for my mother, I can tell you that. <laughs> he would be shop adjacent. <laughs> yes. So some of the other, because um, this is obviously a Christmas story, it is um, not typically the kind of Christmas story that you might expect to find in the Friends these days, because the festive spirit is uh, a little on the sarcastic side, or the sardonic side, as it says mm. in the story. Um, I don't think this is... We, we've spoken about whether or not we would print it based on its language, but it's probably not overtly Christmassy enough to squeeze its way into any of our Christmas bumper issues, I would have thought. I don't know. I mean, it's all about the Christmas cards, so I think I think that would be enough to get it in. And it is all good fun. 
Yeah. yeah. And there is an affection between them underneath all the sarcasm and everything. So it's still got the warmth that you'd expect from a people's friend story. Definitely. I mean, it's still, it still always puts me in mind of um, John and Anne. Very much so. In the rigging, it's it's definitely that sort of thing. And you can imagine them having a similar, you know, John being the long-suffering one sent to the shops to pick stuff up for Anne, who just does nothing but berate him when he comes back. If I remember correctly, <laughs> there, there are stories along those lines. Yeah, there's lots of stories along those lines. So I think it is quite good. I mean, it's always been good-natured. The, the wrangles have never been outright war. They're not designed to be. But there's a lovely line right near the beginning and it just, it's describing Colin McPeever coming and making a big show of lifting this this uh, parcel and basically saying he was only playing to a gallery of one, his wife, but she refused to be impressed. And I think that sort of sums up the stories quite well because that's what he tends to do. He, her, um, I don't know, he needs a reaction from her and it's, you know, it's not negative. It doesn't have to be nasty. He just wants that reaction. And he kind of wants her approval in a lot of ways, I find, in a lot of these stories. Mm -hmm. Just to make his life easier, I think. Yeah, yeah probably. I also think it's their sense of humour as well, don't you? I mean, they, they kind of wind each other up. Yeah, I think they enjoy... at each other at the back Yeah, I think they enjoy scoring points off each other. Yeah. And, but the beauty is they know... I think they know how far to take it because there's another line I highlighted which I absolutely loved. And again, it's not long after this uh, when there's a, a sort of state of detente and uh, I think Colin decided just to, to, to hold his tongue. And he said, as he thought up a paragraph or two of contemptuous silence, he busied himself <laughs> <laughs> on doing the parcel. And I love that phrase, that a paragraph or two of contemptuous lines. silence. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of my favourite lines too. Brilliant. It's sort of John Cage's four minutes, 33 seconds before John Cage. <laughs> it's lovely. And it, I, th I think it describes a lot of, you know, um, you know, if you're in a marriage or in a couple, you, you sometimes have those moments where, yeah, you, you, you've got to guard yourself and hold your tongue and you nothing's to stop you thinking it, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> a paragraph of two. And there are other moments where, of course, you you – Convince her you've told a shopkeeper that she has leprosy. <laughs> How wonderfully 2020 is that particular bit where he, the, the shopkeeper's yeah. actually disinfecting his footprints. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that me too. Perfect story for 2020. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> you play the long game, Mr. McDonald. Yeah. There was that lovely bit too where you can see what a team they are, where he starts to talk about Willie Wilkie's wife. And suddenly, Jean's all ears, and she's there. She's right with him. What's the goss? What did you get about her? And she's disappointed in this instance. But you know they're on the same side there. Yeah, definitely. I find myself getting into trouble for not getting enough gossip. I feel his pain here. Oh, really? Constantly when, when it is considered I might have gossip and it turns out I don't, there is a lot of disappointment. I thought this was quite an interesting part of the story as well because on the sort of second read-through, I kind of realised that it mirrors a little bit that's coming up later on, that metafictional aspect where there's this acknowledgement that they're in the people's friend and he reckons she's coming off worst in it. And they're talking about, you know, they're putting it in the context of money well spent. And again, you know, it kind of ties into this. And there's this bit, lovely bit where Jean sniffs disappointedly. If that was I you drew out of him in exchange for your slanders about me, you got very little change back at your base coin. And that is, it kind of 
preempts what's coming later on in the story, which I I quite liked. Yeah, there is that. Um, we sh- we should speak about that, I guess, the shattering of the fourth wall that happens in the story <laughs> later on, um, where they mention um, he mentions he's going to be sending out copies of the People's Friend, and they have a brief conversation about how they're in it, and and as you say, Barry, there, um, who's coming out better? Um, it's. I think we've spoken about it before. Um, certainly, immediately before recording this, spoilers uh, that other authors in the friend have done this so you came up with the example of um william honeyman having done this in the past yeah william c honeyman um who actually used to edit the christmas specials back in the 1870s 80s and into the 90s uh wasn't above breaking the odd fourth wall when it suited him and actually placing himself in the middle of stories (laughs) alongside his fictitious characters so it's not it's not unusual in that regard but it was a bit surprising for the mcpeavers i've never never encountered this in any of their other wrangles. Um, so it was it was quite a shock to, to realise that they know they're in the People's Friend. I know, I've, I kind of struggled to get my head around that a bit because it, it is, I think it is meant to be fiction. I mean, obviously it is fiction, but, you know, it's it's supposed to be that. It's put in as that. So I, I must admit my brain was boggling somewhat when I came to that bit. When I first read this, I actually... My, my first inclination was, has he written a lovely story about cards and then had an editor say, actually, could you maybe trail the Christmas number for us and add a little bit on? Because this is actually a little bit longer than yes, the previous is. wrangles. Do, do you get a sense of that? I, I'm not sure that I do now, but I, I just that was my first, that was my first uh, inclination when I first read this. It does sound plausible, doesn't it? Well, it seems odd that the writer would take it upon themselves to do that you know, just off the top of their head. It's, it is strange because if you think about the way that almost the, the plot of this story mirrors its purpose, which is quite weird. I mean, the whole point of the McPeavers buying these cards is so they can tell their friends where they, you know, where they now live. And then the purpose of this is clearly for A.P. McDonald to tell the friend where his news thing is going to be living. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know. It's it's a very strange thing. I don't know if he's just taken it upon himself just to trail his own work in the, the Christmas special. Yeah, it seems it seems kind of an odd thing to do. But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe he was directed that way by by the editor. I think it definitely feels it's obviously longer than the others. Um, Judy, you will testify to this having had to read it out. Um, but it is the the others we've spoken before and. Um, perversely in the future, depending on when you're listening to this episode, um, about how kind of tooled all of his, uh, all of the wrangles are and how everything's chosen so carefully and how they're kind of exactly the right length. And this, to me, did seem like the story had kind of come to a conclusion and then there's this weird sort of sketch about them talking about being mm. in the people's friend. But the punchline is great. He talks about this thing and then he uses the, the actual name of the feature because he has a game just to explain to, to the listeners. Uh, what he's actually doing is advertising his own contribution to the people's friend Christmas special, which is coming up later in this particular month. And he has a game called The Last Word, which he and his friends invented. But he uses the title of that as the punchline so I'm struggling to figure out whether this was an add-on or whether this is his whole game plan the whole time. Because if he's getting paid per line, he's doing really well out of this. Yeah. 
whoever said that being verbose wouldn't benefit you. <laughs> the other thing I would say is, well, it's obviously part of a, well, it feels like it's more of a part of a, a coordinated campaign because a month after this particular story, there is um, a letter, you know, in inverted commas, from Mr. McPeever, uh, and it's called Praise for Our Special Christmas Number, in which he complains bitterly that he's received his advance copy and had it snatched off him by Jean, who will not relinquish it. <laughs> so it feels like, it, I, I don't know, it feels like somebody said, well, this is how we're going to trail this. Uh, we want the story, we want the letter, and then we'll build into, into the, the Christmas special. I mean, if that was the plan, it's very clever. There's a lot of planning going on there, if that's the case. Yeah, it really is Farmer and his wife vibes, though, isn't it? Definitely. I think we should uh, have a go at this game. Barry, you have the, the letter that Mr. McDonald wrote into the friend explaining the rules. Oh, yeah. Um, well, do you want to give it a go for us? So basically what he's done, and again, this is really, really clever, in the, the People's Friend Christmas and New Year number, A.P. McDonald has devised a game. Now, to explain the game takes one paragraph. What he's managed to do over two pages is <laughs> eke, this, eke this out. And what he's paid done by again, the line. paid by the line very clearly, and he's incorporated a few of the other People's Friend regulars from that time. And again, he's mixed fact and fiction. So Clay Fisk and Leo Fantasy, uh, well, Leo Fantasy was another E.P. McDonald creation. Uh, there's a chap called Bagshot, there's Tommy Brown and Coconut, who are quite well known at this point. And he's also mixed in the McPeevers, uh, a few others I don't recognise, and the Oracle. He's actually got William C. Honeyman in his guise as the People's Friends' agony uncle, <laughs> playing this game as an example. The example itself, it sounds dull, but it's actually very funny. And uh, he's poking a lot of fun, I think, at some of the characters and uh, personalities involved with the friend at that time. But anyway, the game of the last word. Uh, I'll just read you the rules. There's a small paragraph here. So it says, As many competitors as can squeeze into a semicircle around the fire may compete. Nominate a word, any word. Take article, for instance. The first player spells and names any word composed of any of the letters in article, thus R-A-T, rat. Number two player, next in order, corkscrew direction, which is a brilliant way of denoting direction, perhaps says lie, L-I-E, and the third says tile, and so on and so on. No letter must be used oftener in the subword than it appears in the original word, thus tart would not do because there are not two T's in article. Uh, I, I'm liking the fact he used tart as an example. That's well, me uh, too. That's very telling. <laughs> well, what what could be more festive than that? <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> so um, I don't know if is, that sounds reasonably simple. Mm -hmm. He said with a degree of trepidation. So <laughs> it, I think it just. I I, I think this there's a brilliant line in this, and I just. I, I have to find it. Oh, good Lord. In amongst the, all the explanation of the game and how to play it, there is this fantastic word, bovralized, and in use in, conjunct uh, in conjunction with the use of sort of diminished or reduced language. Bovralized. That's just excellent. I think that's in his letter rather than the story, is it, Barry? Is it in the letter? Is it, yeah. is it, it may, may well be. It's a, a fantastic word. 
I think he's made it up, but he, he gets credit for it, I think. So I think um, maybe Bovrilize is too big a word. So maybe we should go for something smaller. <laughs> I, can, I considered going for the word Christmas, seeing as this is a Christmas story and a Christmas episode. So a corkscrew-wise, how would that work, Ian? Well, if we were all in a room, this would be a lot easier. Um, I'd, you'll have to actually explain to me what corkscrew-wise is. I actually don't know. I mean, as you turn the corkscrew into the that is clockwise. That's, that's the way most people would would say that I guess but corkscrew wise I'm going to be using that more in conversation <laughs> so <laughs> I, I feel like appearing on this podcast is going to lead to an awful lot of a, a resurgence of a lot of antiquated language <laughs> I thought you were going to say I need a lot of wine and consumption but uh, we were on very different pages there <laughs> maybe not <laughs> maybe not sorry yeah. I was already on that page I was waiting for you to catch up <laughs> Uh, well, what we can do is we can decide upon an order. I will go first. Uh, if we do me, Judy, Marion, Barry, and then back again. Okay. okay. Th- this could go horribly wrong. This is trying new things <laughs> on the fly as we record a podcast. <laughs> mm. So the word is Christmas. So I would be remiss if I didn't immediately go for Christ. No names. Sorry, I should have said. Oh, sorry, Ian, you're out. Oh, oh, come on. That's the next line. It's, I, I, it actually says names are barred. So it's not really no, a it's name, actually a is title, it? isn't it? It's, just a, it's, a, it's a title. Yeah. Um, you're fine. I, I was relying on you to read me the rules, Barry, and you left me hanging. No, no, no that, was a, that was a tactical thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if we're allowing Christ, we will, sh- yep. we will move on, Judy. Okay, all right. I will give you... I will give you shirt Mm. Marion cash I'll say rash mist smith hat cash Uh, we've had cash cash. oh have we Mm -hmm. oh well I'm out then I'm not allowed to repeat what I was. I think I'm, I'm, I'm out. I should just say as well, as, as he explains the rules, uh, he makes fun of the fact that, yes, you can write down as many of these as you like, but as as it starts to speed up, you'll start to, your word list will start to diminish, and that's when the pressure really starts. I think, I'm, I, think I'm, I think I am, according to the rules, out, because I've used one that's gone before. So um, it's over to you three, I'm afraid. All right, I'm feeling, I'm feeling lucky. I'm feeling like I might win this. Whose uh, who's turn is it? Uh, me. So, stir. Sometime later. Have we had it? No, I don't think so. No. We have now. I think you'll get away with that. <laughs> talk, talk, That's talk. plenty. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm scuppered. I can't think of anything else. I oh. think it would be, an, I think a far, a far more difficult game um, I mean, I, I wrote down things down as we were doing this, but I think if you were doing it without pen and paper, it'd oh, be yeah. a lot tougher. Oh, a lot yeah, tougher. we'd have been out after about the second one if we didn't have a pen. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, I couldn't do it without pen and paper. You know, it's a worrying sign when you're down to two letter words after about three. <laughs> you, you get, you're like, is, is it okay? Yeah, don't, don't knock the two letter words. <laughs> I would, I hope, I hope this, I hope this, um, the example game that he puts. I hope this is available for you for your listeners to, to have a read through because it is genuinely quite funny. And yes, the, there was a lot made of uh, some of the smaller words, and uh, he's, he's he's quite cutting about uh, the oracle, who is you know a wordsmith to trade, uh, being reduced to sort of is and I and are and you know small things. <laughs> but don't take it personally, Ian. 
<laughs> yeah, no, thanks very much. Yeah. He's, he's being cutting <laughs> at me from 1906, which is quite impressive. <laughs> Told you he was clever. <laughs> that was a burn 114 years in the making. Um, we will have the example game on our social channels for um, the the podcast listeners and all and sundry to have a go at and if you um manage to do a little bit better than me please don't let me know you'll upset me over the festive period (laughs) (laughs) that would be a good zoom game though wouldn't it i think it would be yeah Yeah. i think it's uh yeah definitely this is so 2020 all of this it's it's all absolutely isn't it but of course if you instead of being out if you forget or can't figure out a word you have to drink something and then (gasps) stay in the game yeah Um, that could be entertaining. That's that taking a turn. Massively yeah. entertaining. I wish we'd thought of that before. Is it, <laughs> we can we have a do-over, Ian? Is that possible? It's, it seems dangerous to combine alcohol and microphones. Yes. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> and on that note, I think we'll um, leave that episode for today. So it just remains for me to say thank you to Judy for reading the story. Um, and thank you to Marion and Barry for joining us for that discussion. And thank you to you as well, the listeners, uh, and to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8, and that special offer is available until the 31st of May 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend